When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Success Story. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. HubSpot has been a huge supporter of the show. They have so many tools that can help your business. The one that I want to just mention today, so you go check it out, is their new AI chatbot. It's called Campaign Assistant. And it's a totally free to use AI tool made for marketers and business leaders who spend hours a day on content creation. Campaign Assistant will transform the way you build marketing campaigns at scale. Craft personalized emails, ads, and landing pages in a matter of minutes. Just pick the content type, add key selling points, and let AI take it from there. It works seamlessly with all of HubSpot's marketing and sales tools to scale your output across email, social, and more. So AI your way to your most effective campaigns yet at hubspot.com slash campaign dash assistant. Hey everyone, I'm Wes Ko. I am co-founder of Maven. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, about 45 minutes outside of the city, and I'm a middle child. Uh, I think I've always been pretty entrepreneurial, you know, growing up so close to Silicon Valley, so close to the startup ecosystem. I think, you know, this was the 80, late eighties, early nineties, where there wasn't even really that much of a startup scene. Uh, but I think that that spirit of innovation was always, um, really present in, in, um, when I was growing up. So, uh, I think one of my most formative experiences was when I was 16, I started a nonprofit, uh, called Packs of Love where I donated backpacks and school supplies to foster kids, to family uh, family resource centers, to uh, domestic violence centers, homeless shelters. And before then, I'd never really planned anything bigger than a birthday party before. So when I, when I had this grand vision of, of creating this nonprofit, I realized very soon that it was, it was uh, easier said than done. Um, and at that point, I had already promised a few shelters that I would donate backpacks. And so, you know, that first year I was working on it, I couldn't secure any donations. Um, I went around literally to from store to store to Walmart, Target, uh, Walgreens, asking for donations for pencils, notebooks, backpacks. And all these store managers basically laughed and said, 
you're a kid trying to get free stuff. Like, don't think we're not <laughs> on to you. Um, and, and, you know, it was rightfully so. Like, I didn't have any credibility. And uh, I think the, the one smart thing that I did was the first year after I, I spent my own money to buy all these backpacks because I felt really bad that I'd made this promise. I, I donated them. yourself. <laughs> yeah, I just felt bad that, like, you know, I had made this promise. And so I bought yeah. them all myself. What I did do that that was uh, pretty clever was I called the local newspaper and I had them cover the story and I ended up on the front page of the newspaper. And so the next year that I was fundraising, I took this paper, I bought like 100 copies and I went around to every single store that had rejected me and every single one of them ended up donating. So I basically did this for five years until I, you know, first, second year of college ran this, ran this program, um, and kind of worked my way up the ladder and, and, you know, traded up every single time and eventually was talking to district managers to the corporate office at a lot of these retailers, uh, getting donations directly from Jansport, shipping, shipping boxes of backpacks to my house, um, and donated over $40,000 worth of backpacks, starting this all from scratch. And so that was a really formative experience for me. Um, and really, really influenced me to think about, leadership and acting as a leader without authority, you know, without a title, how do you make an impact and make things happen, make change happen? Um, even if no one has, you know, granted you this title or granted you this credibility, how can you get, how can you get going and start taking action and then snowball that action gradually, you know, to something bigger and bigger. And I think, I think what, what was, um, interesting about all that too, is that I thought that this, the the approach that I had was something that I did because I uh, was learning from trial and error, didn't really um, know any better, right? Fell a lot, learned learned from making all these mistakes, um, and then you know kind of grew something bigger and bigger gradually. But in the last fifteen years or so of uh, working within companies, starting companies, you know, with Seth Godin first with Alt MBA, and then now with Gong Biani, co-founder of Udemy, we started Maven last year. Um, it's actually surprisingly similar. Like it really is starting with an insight, um, figuring out what are the levers and assets that you have? What are the constraints that you're working within? How can you be creative and, uh, and, and make something happen, build something that people want to engage with, want to participate in, um, have a story that inspires people. It's, I was surprised that, um, the, the startup journey, it's kind of that, that arc looks surprisingly similar. So when that arc that, that you discovered when you first built out this, this nonprofit at 16 and how you leaned into this and you mentioned something. So acting like a founder without actually giving, being given that title. So what you're saying is that that's actually a mindset that really lends cadence to a successful startup or a successful venture that you want to take on. So it's just leaning into that, acting like a founder from day one and walk me through what that actually is, is that getting over imposter syndrome? Is that, is that just creating something? What is acting like a founder actually mean? Acting like a founder means taking extreme ownership and thinking about how you can take an idea from a nub of idea, from a nub of an idea to reality. I think founders are uh, relentlessly resourceful. They have to turn a dream into something that is real, something that people can touch and feel and buy and, and, you know, want to pay for. Um, 
And that's something that you can do regardless of whether you're a founder or not. You know, I think, I think that's a missed opportunity for a lot of people working within companies is that you think that, oh, well, I'm not a VP. I'm not a director of something. I'm not a people manager. So I couldn't possibly lead this thing. When in reality, your boss is waiting for you to step up and say, I want to lead this thing. And leading this thing doesn't mean having a grandiose idea and then asking five other people to start working on it and do it just to bring it to life. You know, I have this idea called an end-to-end -end operator. And I think more and more our workplaces are trending towards needing end-to-end -end operators. And what that is, is if you think about uh, person A versus person B, person A, let's say is a, a traditional operator. So you might have an idea like, hey boss, I want to start, uh, I know I think our branch do videos on um, LinkedIn to post and grow a social following. Um, and in order to do that, I need to find a copywriter who can, you know, write a script. I need to find a video editor who can, you know, splice some things together. I need to find a social media manager who understands social, right? So that's, that's person A, convoluted, requires a ton of people to help out, right? Contrast that with person B. Person B says the same thing. Boss, I have this idea. Let's post videos on LinkedIn to grow our social following. Um, and I'm going to draft a quick script, film it on my iPhone, do some quick editing in iMovie, um, and then create a fake LinkedIn account so I can post it onto the actual feed so you can see what it looks like if this were to show up in, you know, in our customers' feeds. And at that point, this is probably going to take um, two to three hours. I can do it all in a day. You can see if this is something that looks good and feels like it's worth doing, and then we can go from there. So person B is an end-to-end -end operator who has the idea and then the skills, motivation, and resource resourcefulness to actually make it happen without making this huge fuss, without making this, it this huge production where they need to loop in all these people. It becomes really heavy. Your boss is going to say no to things that feel like a ton of work without clear upside. That is just fact, right? Like no one wants to commit to... Um, to a slog, if it's unclear, is this, you know, is this something we even want to do? But if you can show that you yourself can whip something together in relatively decently high fidelity to show what your idea could look like, the world is going to open up for you and you're going to be able to do bigger and bigger projects from there. It might start with, you know, posting on LinkedIn and growing social. It might become owning all of social. It might become owning special projects, right? Like it can really grow, but you have to be you have to be willing to do both the strategy and the execution. And that's, that's, a very popular, that's a very popular concept for an entrepreneur to think like that. But I think that giving, giving uh, you know, the, the okay for an employee to think like that is, is really unlocked. Like that's an incredibly powerful thing because most employees, I think, and I'm just making, you know, gross exaggerated assumptions here. I think most pe people think they fall into that category A, that, that A version of an operator. And that's the confines that they have to stay within. Whereas that's, that's really what, that's, that's not what's going to make you successful in your career. And that's really not what a company should even want, right? They should want that person that's used towards a B. Um, now, this is an interesting topic. Um, for, for somebody to, is this more a thing of somebody should find an organization that supports this earlier on in their career? Or is this something that you can unlock within your existing organization that you're already, you're already part of? I think the popular um, kind of first instinct answer for a lot of people is going to be A, that you should find an org that supports this. I'm actually going to go with B, which is 
um, your existing organization is probably going to be really happy if you start doing this. So, of course, obviously, you can't be in an organization where uh, bureaucracy runs so thick and so deep that they don't want people to do anything. Fine. But I think that it's an excuse that a lot of us make that, oh, my boss wouldn't like that. My boss is just mm-hmm. going to tell me no or, you know, it's, it's going to be too, too long of a process. I think that that's an excuse that, that people make. And if we put that excuse aside and, and bring the responsibility back to ourselves on how can I convince the people around me that this is a good idea? How can I sell this idea so that they see the benefit to them and to the organization and to our bottom line? So when you, when you realize that that's your responsibility, that people don't owe you caring about your ideas or listening at all, then you have a higher bar for yourself. And now the problem becomes not, I'm going to mope around and whine that no one's listening to me. And it becomes, what can I do to better convince you? I think that posture is so much more rewarding. It's so much more filling. It's a lot more fun for, you know, for whoever's working in the company. You know, it's, it's not just, it's not just yeah. for the company. It's actually more fun for you. And I think this shift in mentality um, means that you're going to be a lot more creative. I think that people are inherently creative, inherently resourceful. So if you change the mental model and your own posture, um, you know, I don't need to give you more tools to be creative. You already know what to do. It's just that you think you can't do it right now. But if I said, actually, you can. And if you start thinking about how can I convince my boss and make it seem like a win that my boss is going to look great, that I'm going to do this, right, then they're going to be a lot more willing to listen to you. So this is, this is, I love this. And and you came, see, this is what I want to unlock too, because, or, or, or unpack, because you came from, like, you're obviously very entrepreneurial by nature. Like you started something when you're 16, you grew it, you, you figured it out, you made it work. So you jumping into a company, you, you would be the ideal employee because you would probably maintain that mindset and, and you would have that creativity and it's just who you are as a person. Now, if I'm a founder and I'm trying to hire somebody and I want to hire somebody that's like you, or I want to enable somebody to be like you and to be creative. How do I, how do I unlock that in somebody? Because I think that's the, the, the secret that can make a, an early stage startup exponentially success, ex, exponentially more successful than if you just hire people that stay within uh, these like, you know, these very, these very restrictive guidelines for the company. If you can hire somebody who can challenge you, who can think outside the box, who can be creative, that's really who I think you need to hire in a startup environment to be successful because you're not going to be able to do everything yourself. You're not going to be able to figure out everything yourself. And you do have to hire people that are better at the thing that they do than you, but also challenge and bring new ideas to the table. That's one of the most powerful things that you can unlock in the first few hires. So as a founder, how do I get people like you in my company or how do I unlock that mindset in somebody that I hire? Yeah, that's a a really big question and something that we're dealing with now at Maven. So we're about 20 people and hiring for entrepreneurial uh, doers is really, really important. I call them either entrepreneurial doers or strategic doers. Right. I don't want just strategists. We're going to think all day and analyze all day. I need people who are also going to do. And that mix is uh, it's definitely out there. Uh, it can be hard to find. Um, and I think training that spirit within um, your team is super important. I have a concept that I call rigorous thinking and uh, and it's the opposite of lazy thinking. Lazy thinking is basically 
assuming that you're going to put something out there. People are just going to want to buy it. People are going to sign up. People are going to attend. People are going to download um, without thinking about why and the steps, the logical steps that you're going to take to incentivize your audience. It's, it's you know, making decisions without really thinking clearly about what, what each each step entails. Um, I got this idea from from that South Park episode where where <laughs> one character says like, I have this idea, step one, the idea, step two, question mark, step three, profit. You know, and we all laugh at that. But I think a lot of us, when we pr- propose ideas, you know, to our bosses, it's like, okay, here's this great idea. And then all, all of a sudden it's going to work. So rigorous thinking is the opposite. Rigorous thinking is having a systematic way to make decisions that are defensible, where you can explain your thought process and rationale, where you're thinking about second or third order effects. What are the implications of this down the line? If we pull up into uh, the 30,000 foot view, what, how does this impact other parts of the business? How does this impact our own business two years from now? Um, what is the level of effort it takes to do this? What's the upside and the payoff? So it's thinking thoroughly about how do we vet this idea to make sure that it's worth doing in the first place? And ironically, a lot of people will say, oh, Wes, well, that takes too long. Like needing to think about all these things takes too long. Well, doing it and then it exploding and needing to clean up the mess also (laughs) takes a long time, right? And and so you actually save time by thinking a bit more upfront rather than just jumping straight in and just, you know, starting to throw spaghetti on the wall. I actually think that this mentality of rigorous thinking actually allows you to experiment more and faster, ironically. So um, this idea of rigorous thinking is something that I promote on our team at Maven and um, is something that, that I encourage managers uh, to adopt because, you know, it really shifts, it really shifts your team members' um, mindset and posture because usually, you know, if you're, uh, if you're a manager, you want your team member to come to you with ideas. You want them to be more proactive, right? I've never met a manager who didn't want their people to be more proactive. And, you know, but then your team be, is proactive. Uh, they come to you with the idea and then you automatically give them a wrist slap or you say no, or you, you know, answer their question and, and send them off. And that doesn't breed um, a pattern of ownership. It doesn't make them think for themselves. It doesn't teach them to think for themselves. So with rigorous thinking, instead of just answering a question that, that your team member might have, and having them rely on you and kind of become dependent on you, you want to teach them to think for themselves. And an easy way to do that is to ask, well, how would you solve this? Or what would you do? Right? And then pausing and letting them think and propose an idea to you. And then you can follow up with a list of questions that promote more rigorous thinking on any areas and gaps that they might have missed so that they can, again, think for themselves and then come up with an idea that they can then show to you. And the benefit of this is you move from this relationship of dependency of your team constantly needing to require you to think for them and you to tell them what to do to them learning to think for themselves and um, and being a lot more self-sufficient. And then also you not having to be the bad guy, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's not great to be the bad guy always saying no to different ideas. If I can ask you a question and have you realize that, hey, I need to think about this a little bit more, that this idea is not quite as as rigorous as I thought it was, that's great. Then I don't have to tell you no. You realize that you have a little bit more thinking to do and you can come back when you have something that you want to discuss that's in a, in a better stage to discuss. Yeah. So you not only use this strategy 
because, okay, so let me, let me, I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Eufy is sponsoring today's video. They reached out to me. I tested out their video lock. It is a game changer. I'm going to paint a picture for you for why I'm so excited to work with them. So you're getting home. Your arms are loaded with groceries or packages or boxes or everything. And your keys are in your pocket. This drives me nuts. This happens all the time. I upgraded to the Eufy video lock. Fingerprint tap i'm inside and honestly i also feel way safer it's got this awesome built-in camera so whether it's a package delivery or late night uber order i see exactly who's there right from my phone there are no more mystery knocks and the best part this thing was such a breeze to set up there's no wires there's no drilling uh, there's also no monthly subscription fees so if you are done fumbling with your keys because i definitely am search for eufy video lock or head over to eufyofficial.com slash video lock your front door, your sanity. Today's show is brought to you by 1Password. Now listen, we all have that one friend who's constantly forgetting passwords and needing help to get into their accounts. I have a solution, it's called 1Password. 1Password is the award-winning password manager trusted by millions of users and companies like IBM and Slack to keep logins, credit cards, and other private info safe in an encrypted vault that only you can access. No more sticky notes with passwords or using the same password everywhere. I've been using 1Password for a year now and I can't recommend it enough. It saves me time from having to reset passwords and gives me peace of mind knowing my info is secure. With convenient features like automatic password generation and login autofill, 1Password takes the hassle out of passwords. You can use it on all your devices, iOS, Android, Mac, PC, everything syncs seamlessly. And with top-notch security audits and encryption, your data stays private. So do yourself a favor and check out 1Password today Go to onepassword.com slash Clary and get a two-week free trial. Let 1Password remember all of your logins for you so you can remember what really matters. That's onepassword.com slash Clary for two weeks free. Let me just unpack this. So this is something that you can use in the immediate short term when somebody comes to you with a problem and you let them solve this problem for themselves. You, you provide support, but still you're letting that person solve that problem for themselves. But then also... Have you seen this foster a culture of creativity once you start 
in the short term and letting the people solve those problems themselves in the long term. Now you see them coming up with more creative solutions without even going to you for that, for that sign off or that. Okay. So now they're just proposing solutions without even having a problem. Is that what you're, you're seeing at Maven when you adopt this, this mindset or this, uh, this rigorous thinking, um, I guess, uh, concept and you sort of let that permeate your whole organization. Yeah, absolutely. I think, okay. I think this is a part of culture. So yeah. the company culture, you know, there's the, the written mission values, you know, innovation, growth, collaboration, it's all these written things, but a lot of culture is the unspoken rules of a place mm-hmm. and the things that get celebrated and the things that get poo-pooed where you get a little finger wag and the things that you celebrate, people will do more of. So if you are saying that you want your team to come up with more ideas and that everyone is an owner, ideas can come from anywhere. And then when ideas do come from anywhere, you say like, Ooh, sorry, like, no, please go sit back down. People are not going to want to do more of that. Like we, we are, you know, pretty, um, I think people, people realize when they have a bad, uh, they get a bad reaction from something, right? Like a negative, um, a negative reaction. They're not going to want to do more of that if, that if that's what you're giving them. So encouraging when people bring up ideas, when people are thinking rigorously, being willing to engage in that discussion, in that debate of with that person as an equal. I think that that's so important and it's helped Maven move really fast. I mean, we've only been around for a year. We've all already driven $2 million in core sales and we're pre-product. That means we haven't wow. even released our product yet. And we've already started helping instructors create courses. We started building up the ecosystem, teaching people how to create courses. So more people are, are participating in this ecosystem. And I think the reason we were able to do that is because we have this culture of treating ideas as um, based on their merit. Doesn't matter if it came from a junior person, from a co-founder, from the CEO, from an engineer, from someone on the course team, from a designer. If the idea is good, it's good. And it doesn't matter if it, the idea the idea comes from the CEO or the most junior member of the team. We're going to vet it thoroughly, and we're going to poke holes, and we're going to poke and prod. So just because you have a title does not mean that we automatically assume that you have thought about this. We are just as rigorous and just as um, as lovingly critical of um, ideas from you know the supposed expert as we are from someone um, who you know is outside of the department that they're suggesting this idea. Very smart. I love I love that mindset. Um, I want to talk about the inception of Maven um, because I think that's a very interesting. Uh, it's, so these are great these are great cultural startup lessons. But the inception of Maven and how you've built it, how it's grown so fast, and where that idea even came from, cohort based learning. Why cohort based learning is potentially a better option for people to learn than maybe traditional education. We talk about that as well. So let's keep going down your story. Let's keep going down your timeline and uh, let's go into the origins of Maven and, and how that came about. Right before starting Maven, I was consulting. I was working directly with different course creators to build their versions of the Alt MBA. So before that, I had started the Alt MBA with Seth Godin, built it to thousands of students around the world, 45 countries, 500 cities. And I did that for three years and then uh, left to um, answer another nagging question that was in my mind, which was, was there something about the Alt-MBA that was specific to that space and time? Was there something in the water or something in the air that made this program work? 
Or was there something unique about this format of cohort-based learning? Um, back then there wasn't, you know, we hadn't even come up with a name for it yet, but this idea of live community-based learning that um, isn't just watching a bunch of videos, sitting by yourself in your in your room, uh, watching Udemy or Skillshare videos, but rather learning together with a group of people over a course of two days or two weeks or two months, a set period of time. Um, was there something about this format that could lend itself to other experts, other creators, other verticals, other industries? And so I left the Alt-MBA and started working directly with different creators. I worked with uh, Professor Scott Galloway from NYU Stern at Section 4. He was one of my earliest clients. And I worked with the founding team to design their sprint format for their course, two-week sprints. I worked with the co-founders of Morning Brew, Alex and Austin. Uh, I worked with David Perel from Rite of Passage, Tiago Forte from Build a Second Brain. So these early adopters in uh, in online course creation and proved out that, yes, there is a market for cohort-based courses. On the creator side, creators love teaching them. It's an amazing revenue stream. And, uh, and on the student side, learners. Learners love that these courses are a chance to meet other like-minded people, to work on uh, on, on a topic that they love that's that's way more interactive than just watching videos. Um, and, and I also realized a third thing, which is that even if you are um, a decently well-established creator or expert, like, like Professor Galloway or, you know, the guys at Morning Brew, it still takes a huge amount of effort to create a cohort-based course. It's a super labor-intensive process where you're cobbling together a bunch of tools five to six different kinds of software. You're, te you're using Teachable, Kajabi, Podia, Slack, Circle, Heartbeat Chat, Luma, email, um, and stitching it all together. Um, and, and every one of these steps, something could break, right? So like I've personally been trying to debug uh, zaps that stopped working all of a sudden, no idea why, like UTM links and just like so convoluted and Creators, it's for creators, it's really not their the best use of their skill set. It's not what they like doing either, you know, messing with the technical aspect. And so I saw this pattern come up over and over with every single creator that I worked with that everyone was had these like really janky setups. Um and and there wasn't anything better. So that kind of that planted the seed of, okay, there's there's gotta be a better way. There's gotta be some um some way that we can make this this process more seamless for creators. So uh, last summer, Goggin Biani reached out to me. Uh, we actually went to high school together, you know, going back to the very beginning of, of where I grew up, Bay Area. So Goggin and I went to the same high school, Mission San Jose High School in Fremont. And uh, so we, are, we already knew each other. We also went to college together, UC Berkeley. Um, he was a year younger. So, so we didn't know each other well, but we knew of each other. And I get an email from Goggin in my inbox and he says, hey, uh, Wes, I just came back from two years of traveling abroad uh, after, after shutting down my last company. And I'm, starting about start, I'm thinking about starting a new company um, in the education space again. And I've been thinking about cohort-based courses. Everyone I talked to said that I should talk to you. And I told them, I don't need an intro. I already know you. I'm just going to send Wes a note directly. So, so we hopped on a call and we started to, you know, shooting shooting the shit around, you know, different ideas, throwing it out on ideas. And originally he was giving me some advice about my consulting practice. I was giving him some advice about core-based courses. And after, you know, two or three calls, we were like, should we just start this, this together? I mean, like there's, there's some clear, 
there's some clear um, synergies here uh, with with our skill sets and and um, and things that we're good at and like doing and that would be valuable for the business. And um, and so that kicked off us thinking seriously um, and vetting each other. Right. So so this idea of rigorous thinking was was really baked in from the beginning. We did the, the um, co-founder dating questionnaire from First Round Capital. They have a, a great article, 50 questions to ask a future co-founder. And we spent hours each week for a couple of weeks going through these questions and really getting to know each other and um, and seeing if this would be a good fit. Um, and and I think that that upfront investment has has completely paid off. Um, it made both of us feel much more comfortable working with each other and and going into this this um, co-founder co-founder relationship, um, which can be you know it's kind of like marriage in many ways. Like you're you're attaching your hip to someone you you have to really trust them. And we had never worked with, together before, right? So it's not like we had worked together at a company or you know uh, you know we're we're close classmates in school. Um, and so doing this upfront vetting, I think was was really really great for giving us both peace of mind, knowing what we were getting into, knowing what baggage each person was bringing, what context each person was bringing. Um, and, you know, so, so, so that was last, last fall, uh, about a year ago now. Um, and, uh, since then it's just been, been a whirlwind. We got to building right away and, uh, started launching courses within a couple months. Um, we, we launched courses and started building even before we had the tech product ready. And I think this was amazing because it, it gave our engineering co-founder, which who we found a couple months later, um, some some leeway, some buffer. We bought some time for for him and his team to build the product and add you know, great features. Meanwhile, we were already starting to work with creators because of my experience uh, building courses. Um, so we were able to get started really quickly, hit the ground running. We actually only came up with a logo and um, a website two weeks ago, like maybe maybe even last week. Like a year in to um, to the company, fifty instructors and courses and creators later, two million dollars later, that's when we, you know, started a Twitter account and you know launched our website and and came up with a logo. And so I think I think we inverted a lot of the the expectations that people have about starting a company. That like you know the first thing you need to do is is come up with a great logo and your color palette and et cetera et cetera. We kind of put that aside and said, how can we build? Um, and offer something of value to um, our customers as soon as possible so we can validate, validate this idea. A quick break from this podcast to recommend another podcast that you have to check out. It's called The Product Boss. It's hosted by Jacqueline and Mina. It's part of the HubSpot podcast network. If you have a physical product, this podcast is hyper-tailored to you. It's going to help you take your business to the next level. In a recent episode, for example, they spoke about the power of TikTok for product businesses and how to use it to drive sales. And as somebody who is a little new to TikTok, I really learned some great tips for creating content that actually converts viewers into customers. They have a workshop style format that makes it really easy to follow along to take your business to the next level. So if you sell physical products, subscribe to The Product Boss wherever you get your podcast to unlock social media, marketing, and business strategies that create your dream business and then your dream life. And is that, so I have a couple questions to pull out of that. Um, I want to go down uh, the the road of either the startup lessons and whatnot. And I, w- I think I want to unpack some of those and just some of that product-led growth that you just referred to and and I guess product-led launch for lack of a better term. But also just to tee it up for cohort-based learning, I just want to understand from your perspective, 
And for people that are listening to this who don't know what cohort-based learning is, because that's going to—that's what Maven is. Um, what is it replacing? Is it replacing like MOOCs? Is it replacing university? What is who who would benefit from this? And who have you found to be the target audience for a cohort-based learning? Ron, cohort-based courses are uh, really simple. It's learning online with a group of people with a set start and end date. So you might do a course with 30 other people on UX design over a two-week period. That's a cohort-based course. Uh, you might do a course with 1,000 people. Section 4 with Professor Galloway has 1,000 people in their course. Uh, but either way, there's a lot more interactivity, there's a lot more hands-on doing, and it's not passively consuming content. You're not just reading by yourself, watching videos, you're actually putting the lessons that you learned into practice. So with this design course, for example, instead of reading about white space and color and uh, balance and proportions, you're actually designing a flyer using these principles and then maybe sharing a Figma link in Slack where... Um, the other classmates and your instructor can critique your design and then everyone talks about it, learns, here's what this person did well, here's what, could, here's what you could fix. And it's much more about that hands-on doing. Um, so with core-based courses, what does it replace? Um, I like thinking about learning experiences, not necessarily as, as replacing something, but adding another option for learners. So there are times when you might want something that's pre-recorded. You might want the flexibility to watch videos and and kind of get that information download from something, especially if you're a beginner. Um, but then there are other times when you want to learn with a group of people and you want to actually put those lessons into practice and um, you want someone to keep you accountable. You want that community. And in that case, a core-based course is an amazing option. Same with, you know, does do core-based courses replace higher education? You know, I get that. I get that question a lot. And I don't think, especially in the short term, it's going to replace higher education. I think higher education is, is, you know, less so for the information that you're learning, more so for the credential. Um, you know, we still live in a society where a lot of jobs say four-year degree required, right? Like bachelor's degree required. And and um, it's kind of a gatekeeping tool to keep people out. And so I totally get if people still want to do college because like that makes sense, like in our current society. I think more and more um, the, the beauty of the internet is that the internet allows you to show proof of work, proof points of your ability. So instead of saying, I uh, went to advertising school, got, you know, an, uh, I know what that is, like a MFA or, or something, <laughs> whatever it whether is, it's yeah. a master's or an undergrad degree in, in advertising, if I um, posted an ad every day on Instagram, that's pretty cool. Like if, if a future employer sees um, thousands of, uh, or hundreds of, ads that I've created or mocked up or, you know, edited, um, that's a great proof of work. I'd much rather hire someone who has proof of work with either a podcast that they've created, um, a blog that they've written, um, articles, Instagram, Twitter following that they've grown. All of this shows their ability to build and their ability to ship much more than, hey, I studied mass comm um, in college. So, I think, I think the, the, the beauty of the internet is that it, it does open up um, much more opportunities for people to show their work. Um, and it also opens up opportunities for you to learn from amazing operators. So with cohort-based courses, you know, instead of learning from a professor of product management who hasn't been in industry for 25 years, you can learn from Lenny Ruchitsky, who was an early product manager at Airbnb, 
now makes a living writing his Substack newsletter. Um, and he has a product management course on Maven. And you can learn directly from him on what it took to be a successful product manager for him and, and you know all the learnings that he's gathered along the way. So it's much more practical. It's much more concrete. It's much more relevant and timely. Um, you know, instead of learning uh, about investing from a professor, again, who you know is rooted in academia, you can learn from Lee Jin, who is a former VC at Andreessen Horowitz, who now has her own firm. She coined the term passion economy and is known for uh, for investing in passion economy companies, supporting passion economy founders. So if you're a, if you're a fellow VC and you want to get in the in the creator economy game and start investing in, in that kind of company, um, or if you're a founder of a creator economy type company like Maven is, um, who better to learn from than someone like Lee, right? And so I think that the exciting thing about core-based courses is that it provides opportunities to supplement um, your, your learning and to allow working professionals to continue um, retooling, upskilling, and deepening their craft. From people who are actually doing it. And that's, that's exactly. actually bringing it full circle to actually the first point you made about that ideal employee who is somebody who can execute. And if you want to be that ideal employee, if you want to be the employee like you know of the future who can uh, be creative to take on challenges and to not just ideate on them, but to actually execute on them, well, this is a great way to start turning yourself into one of those people because now you're learning from people that have actually done those things. So if you want to, for if you're a marketer and you want to, for example, to go back to your, uh, uh, your, your uh, example to run videos on LinkedIn, well, maybe you should be learning from somebody who's actually executed on that successfully so that you can now figure out step-by-step step how to execute on that successfully and learn every single piece that could eventually allow you to do that and to even put it in front of a manager or a leader versus taking uh, a, a more academic lens to that topic that you want to learn about. And then you're like learning theoretical about how to optimize for conversions or how to, uh, you know, how to uh, set up a campaign. Like you can actually work with somebody who's done it before. And I think that that also, that, that the person who is that kind of employee who does take action and who does not just ideate on things, but builds, builds things that could also be the ideal consumer of a cohort based course realistically that's i just i'm just trying to think about like the the personality that would also enjoy this and find it useful it'd be somebody who is a doer who wants to learn the practical step by step yeah absolutely i think if you if you want to sit back and you know kick your feet up cross your arms and wait for someone to entertain you a core based course isn't right for you if you're ready to dive in and do the work and you want to learn by doing hands on whether it's with exercises projects breakouts um shipping actual copy that you're writing mm -hmm. that's that's what a court-based course is great for it provides that accountability. Level of accountability exactly yeah yeah <laughs> i was gonna say because every like there so with the cohort based, uh, cohort based course excuse me there's accountability for everything that you're putting out and and you have peers you have your instructor and you're working one-on-one -on -one every step of the way everything that you're learning um everything you have to ship things you have to create things in a cohort-based course usually and and that's part of the the accountability piece too yeah, I think the other part of accountability is that just by virtue of you having paid a premium for a course, you're way more likely to take it seriously. So I've mm -hmm. personally signed up for you know $10, $15 Udemy courses. I think I have one on classical music appreciation and one on 
hand lettering calligraphy, where I watched maybe 15 minutes of the first lecture and then said, oh, I'm going to come back to this later. And five years later, it's still gathering digital dust. So, yeah. right, like that's, there's no accountability there. There's no, there's no skin off my back. If, if I don't go back, it's only, you know, 10, 15 bucks. I just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you so much, Indeed, for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Whereas most core-based courses are in the the several hundred dollar range or a few thousand dollar range, so if you're paying, let's say, $750 to learn this topic, uh, there's a certain there's there's way more commitment on you, the learner. Even if even if you know the instructor isn't breathing down your neck or coaches aren't breathing down your neck, um, it's it's something that you already feel committed to. That's why you're even even paying this amount and doing this course in the first place. So it's it's kind of like a personal trainer at the gym, right? Like yeah. theoretically, we could all work out in our living room from YouTube videos. Why don't we all do that? Because life gets in the way, we get distracted, no one's holding us accountable, no one notices if we don't do it, right? Whereas if, if I've paid a personal trainer, you know, 70 bucks an hour, 100 bucks an hour, um, you bet I'm gonna show up. Yeah, 
Yeah, smart. Um, okay, I want to I want to pull out some uh, some of the lessons from you taking uh, Maven to market um, because I know that you're like you're a very strong marketer as well. So, what were some of the lessons that you learned over your career when you actually launched Maven? Um, how you brought it to market? How you got your first fifty customers? What was that process like? I think we were really thoughtful from the beginning on how can we set up experiments to um, test what people want? Um, and so early on when we were investing in fundraising or when we were fundraising, we prioritized investors who wanted to teach cohort-based courses. So we intentionally picked experts, operators, people with big social followings who were excited about teaching in the future because if this person is on our side, they're more likely to want to work with us they're more likely to, you know, want to launch a course. And so we kind of, we kind of stack the deck in our favor. I'm a huge fan, by the way, of stacking the deck in your favor. I think that if someone random off the street has the equal likelihood of succeeding, starting the company that you're going to start, you probably shouldn't do that. You should do something where you have an unfair advantage. And so for us, um, Goggin had great relationships with, with a lot of VCs. Um, we both have uh, Twitter followings and, um, and, and kind of had Twitter friends, if you will, that were excited about creating courses. And so um, prioritizing angel investors, we did a crowdfunding campaign too, prioritizing angel investors who were excited about creating courses. That meant that we had a whole base of people, even before we launched anything, that were excited about um, building courses. So I think that was was the first thing that we did right. Um, the second was not not waiting for the product to be finished before starting to test the market and, and test our offering. So early earlier you had mentioned product-led growth. Um, I think this is a better example of, I'm trying to think of, of what a better term is. Yeah, it's Maybe not the like, right term. I just didn't know what to call it. Yeah, there's not really a great term for it. I, I'm thinking, you know, offering-led growth or experiment-led growth. Mm -hmm. But but basically we, um, we started offering, um, offering, something to our target customers, our instructors, um, that we could build manually behind the scenes. So this idea of do unscalable things um, was very much uh, applied here, where we were working directly with instructors for our first couple of courses to help them build the course and teach them one-on-one -on -one how to build the course and then to launch on Maven. So we launched with Pomp, Anthony Pompliano, he has a crypto course. Um, we had Sahil Lavingia, CEO of Gumroad. Um, we had Lee Jin, Lenny Rachitsky, launch courses. So this gave us um, this gave us a, a a a start that was kind of starting off with a bang and creating some some momentum and and um, excitement around the category around creating courses. And then once we did that, uh, it wasn't super scalable because you know we were helping these creators one on one to build courses. It. Yeah, it was yeah, me and my first yeah. hire literally building these courses. Um, and we thought, well, how can we do this in a in a bit more of a scalable way? So not swing the pendulum to automating everything. I think that's that's a common mistake is people automating things too early before things um, are have proven good enough to even automate in the first place, right? And then then once you automate something that's a part, it's like running and it's easy to set and forget it. Um, so I'm a big proponent of of not automating too early. So we we thought about well, you know, working one on one with creators wasn't very scalable with two people. How do we um, how do we go kind of a, a couple steps more scalable? And so this is where the idea of the Maven Course Accelerator came up. 
And so the Maven Course Accelerator is a three-week course where I teach a group of instructors how to build core-based courses. And over these couple of weeks, I teach everything end-to-end with how to build a curriculum, how to find course market fit, how to write your landing page, how to create interactive exercises so your students can learn by doing. And we curate this group of instructors. Um, and you know we have one coming up uh, at the end of this month with 100, 130 um, instructors who are coming in. And there's time to build during this course. So by the end of the three weeks, you have a pilot, an MVP of your course ready to ship. And so we're building up the supply side on Maven in this really thoughtful way where we're, we're curating which instructors make sense to bring on in small batches, you know, 100, 100, uh, 120, 130 people, and then teaching them. We have coaches, we have myself teaching, we have guest lecturers. So it's still, it's, there's still a lot of, um, a lot of hands-on support, mm-hmm. but it's more scalable. Um, and so this has been a great way to um, expand who we're able to work with. Uh, so now our team is is about 20 people. Uh, we have a bunch of people on the business side, on the product engineering side. Um, I think we're we're uh, doing a great job of serving instructors and being smart about um, where's our highest point of leverage. Instead of just hiring um, wildly and just you know ramping up and and um, and opening up headcount everywhere, we're being thoughtful about where can we add the most value to instructors? What are things where we might potentially outsource or partner or um, hire contractors? So for example, we're thinking about um, potentially offering services to some of our bigger instructors. Um, and that might entail um, pairing them up with a course manager that we help them hire and we train and onboard that person. That person's on uh, the instructor's payroll but we help find them, we help train them, we make sure that they have everything that they need so that um, they can best support an instructor. So those are some things that we're thinking about and exploring. Now, those are all incredible things, but where do you, where do you, uh, or how do you ideate on some of the more thoughtful points that you've just spoken about? Because it seems like you aren't following a playbook that I've seen before. I think you, what you mentioned where you, you know, you build things that don't scale and then you automate a lot of it is a general playbook that people do follow. So you're very thoughtful about how you've built this company, how you're continuing to build it. So what is your process for ideating on next steps on what to make more scalable on what to not on how to maintain that quality versus how to make sure that my company still scales at a rate where my investors are going to get, you know, a positive ROI. So I'm just curious of your thinking process because I find it incredible. I think it's very, I think it's very powerful, and it's something that if I don't even know if you can unpack it, if you can, uh, that would be beneficial for uh, early stage entrepreneurs. Yeah, it's funny that you asked that because I was just having this conversation with a team member today in Slack, like literally. 30 minutes before hopping on this call <laughs> well, with you. I, I could, so. It's because it's because of how you think things through. It's just, it's incredible. And, and when you say it, it all makes sense. But if I was looking at a problem, I don't think I'd come to that same solution as you just did, as how you're building at this company so thoughtfully. So I'm just curious how, is it just innate? Is it something that you were always, the way that you always thought through? Or is there an actual process that you, you use? I think it goes back to the idea of rigorous thinking that we were talking about earlier. Um, I have an article on this on my blog with a set of 20 or so questions that that managers can ask and that actually I ask myself all the time. So it's actually kind of mm-hmm. a checklist for myself too. Um, I think 
I think one thing that um, is a, a mistake that a lot of team members make, um, and I've seen it on my own team, um, and sometimes in myself too, is thinking about the level of effort that it takes to do something. Um, and then saying like, oh, this is too much effort. Let's either automate it or hire people to do it or not do it. Um, and I think that's the wrong way to, to look at it. The level of effort it requires to do a certain project, to launch a certain initiative, to build something standalone doesn't mean anything. It's the upside, the payoff that is associated with that, that you really need to think about. So if you're saying to me, oh, you know, Wes, I don't think we should do that. That's a lot of work. I am not convinced. Like, I don't care that it's a lot of work. Like, that's what we're all here to do is to do the work. So like, that's not a compelling argument. But if you say that's a lot of work, given the payoff, I think the payoff is really small. We're going to do all this work and we're only going to get this, you know, this upside. That is more compelling to me. But usually when you think about the payoff of, of some some idea, you might actually realize that, hey, this, this seems like kind of a slog to do. Um, but this opens up a lot of GMV potential for us, gross merchandise volume, a lot of revenue potential, right? A lot of um, a lot of opportunity to grow our market share or grow our mind share. Um, and then the work might be worth it. So thinking about not just not just the cost, but also the upside. I think that framework, I was literally just talking to, about that uh, to a team member earlier today uh, when we were talking about idea and, and, and they were kind of like, no, you know, it's a lot of work. I don't know if you should do it. Um, or, or, you know, sometimes people jump straight to wanting to automate that thing. Oh, it's a lot of work. Let's just either hire someone on Upwork or Fiverr or Freelancer, um, or, you know, try to solve with technology and, and, and automate it. And a lot of times you think about it and you realize that that thing, like we shouldn't even be doing that. Like we don't even need to opt automate it because we just shouldn't do it in the first place. Like there's mm -hmm. literally that's a more other, elegant solution. Side. Yeah. So yeah. I think thinking more deeply about what is the elegant solution here that is, you know, not over baking a problem, not making it too complicated, but but solving it neatly without fuss. Um, I think challenging yourself to think about that. That's something that I challenge myself to think about all the time. Um, and I usually find uh, either a good solution to something from that um, or great rationale that leads to an awesome discussion. So, you know, that discussion about the cost versus the upside, different team members could have different information different data points that you might not have. So I might think that, hey, the cost here is is X and I think the upside is Y. And I'm going to build that case and, and try to convince you that that we should do it because this is the upside. But you might have a data point about, hey, actually, um, one of your assumptions um, uh, is, is faulty. And that leads to the upside actually being half of what we think it is. Do we still think that it's worth proceeding? So we're, I think the great thing is, is being able to have these conversations in a logical way where you're you're unpacking an idea and it's not just um this this fuzzy vague idea you're actually laying out what your assumptions are you're laying out what you think the costs are what you think the upside is um and then everyone can have a, a well-informed conversation about it and understand why we are doing this in the first place and that, that concept of, of rigorous thinking is what unlocks that psychological safety and security in the team to allow them to have those conversations with you and to challenge your points of view on things. That's what I'm, that's what I'm reading between the lines on this. And that's really why you're able to, to grow at the pace that you're at, because you have this team that you're actually leveraging versus just a top down do this because I think it's the right thing to do. Very mm -hmm. amazing. Okay. Okay. We've gone through a lot of stuff. Um, 
I, I always want to, to wrap these up with a couple rapid fire just to bring out some insights from your career. Was there any other things that we didn't go into that you wanted to, to speak about, just touch on um, that you would hope people listening to this would take away from the work you're doing or what they could experience if they come to Maven? Yeah, I think two things. One is that we're hiring. So if a lot of what I talked about doesn't scare you away, I imagine it will scare some people away. But if this sounds actually exciting and invigorating for you, uh, then come work with us because this is our culture. Um, and this is, the second thing is, if you're thinking about creating a core-based course, uh, one common um, kind of point of, of frustration or stress for a lot of first-time course creators is thinking that their course needs to be perfect right out of the gate. And they compare their first cohort of their course with someone's 50th. They look at the Alt-MBA or they look at you know, David Perel's course and they, they get really intimidated. So uh, the thing that I want to leave you all with is um, your first course doesn't have to be perfect. You're going to iterate on it. It's going to get better. So getting started and starting to take action and learn from that action and iterate is more important. So I uh, wanted to put that out there too. No, that's good. That's good. Um, and where do people connect with you? Uh, websites, socials, all of that. So any links you want to you wanna drop? Maven.com is our website. At MavenHQ is our Twitter. And I'm at Wes underscore KO. Okay, perfect. All right, so we'll run through these rapid fire because I want to be respectful of your time cool. too. Um, so biggest, <laughs> so you can you can go on, you can you can extrapolate, or you can keep it as short and sweet as you'd like. So biggest challenge that you've had in your career, what was it, and how did you overcome it? Ooh, that's beefy. I wanted to do these, you know, one one word answer questions, but I'll, I'll try to keep it. Uh, maybe one sentence or a couple sentences. It's, it's forcing you. It's forcing you to think. It's forcing yes. you to think because I know that all these questions you could probably go a whole hour on each single one. But I think coming to terms with my own strengths and weaknesses, and not beating myself up for things that I wasn't naturally good at, and choosing instead to lean into my strengths. Good. Very good. Um, if you had to choose one person, of course, there's been many who's been impactful in your life. Who was that? And what did they teach you? I'm going to choose fictional characters here. So okay. um, Olivia Benson from Law & Order SVU. <laughs> Absolutely love her. I feel like she leads with, um, she's she's professional. <coughs> Sorry, I'm getting over dry cough. We can edit this part out. Um, so, <laughs> no. so. Olivia Benson from Law & Order SVU. I absolutely love her. Um, I think she's professional. She's direct. She makes hard decisions and she's really empathetic about it. Um, so I, I think she's amazing. And the other person is um, How to Get Away with Murder. Uh, Annalise Keating, the main character there. She's just super fierce. So those two. I love that. I love that show. So good. <laughs> um, it is, it's a really good show. Um, if you had to pick one source that you use to learn or grow, it could be podcast, audible, could be even a person, uh, we should go check out. What would that be? could be a book too. I forgot. Book, just yes. subbed audible for books. Yes. Yeah. Right now I'm reading high output management from Andy Grove, okay. former CEO of Intel. It's life changing. Like literally every sentence is changing my life as I read it. So I highly recommend it. That is incredible praise. That I, now I have to get that book if every sentence is life changing. I've never heard that's never been a recommendation on the show so far. So that's great. Okay, good. Um, if you could tell your twenty year old self one thing, what would it be? I would tell twenty year old Wes to worry less. And last question: What does success mean to you? Success means being able to work on what you want to work on and uh, areas that you're great at that add a lot of value.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.